everyone, and welcome back to season two of the Behind the Stigma podcast. This podcast bridges the gap between scientific research and the general public on all things psychology, neuroscience, and mental health related. I'm Ciara Manova, the host and producer of the podcast, and in today's episode, we will be discussing the immunology of psychiatric disorders, particularly psychosis. Our guest speaker today, who I'm delighted to introduce, is Dr. Thomas Pollack. Dr. Pollack is an NIHR clinical lecturer at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College London, and an honorary consulted neuropsychiatrist at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. In 2015, he was awarded a Wellcome Trust Clinical Research Fellowship to look at the neuroimmunological basis of psychiatric disease, with a particular focus on the autoantibodies known to cause autoimmune encephalitis, which we'll be discussing today. In 2019, he was awarded an NIHR clinical lectureship and has trained in universities such as Oxford, King's and University College London. What an impressive background. Dr. Pollack, welcome. It's an honor to finally speak with you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, amazing. Well, we've got lots of interesting things to talk about today because this is really a fascinating area. The intersection between immunology and psychiatric conditions. But uh, before we deep dive into it, as always, I like to start with the basics. So um, to start us off, maybe we can talk a little bit about what are autoimmune conditions and how they impact the nervous system. And maybe this would be a good time to also understand the difference between immunology and neuroimmunology as well. Yeah, so so autoimmune disorders are there's a whole category of medicine, uh, really. And, and uh, I suppose the key thing to realize with autoimmune disorders is that they occur in multiple systems uh, across the body. Pretty much every branch of medicine encounters uh, autoimmune disorders of, of one sort or another. I think there are around sort of 80 that have been specifically named to date, but no doubt there, there will be more that, that will be identified. And what happens in an autoimmune disorder is, to put it simply, it's really where the body's immune system turns against itself. Uh, and what that means is at some point in the development of the immune system, the, the normal process by which the immune system recognizes the, one's own tissues as self and, and, and therefore uh, uh, learns to tolerate that, that process goes wrong. And so there's a loss of self-tolerance and tissues that belong to us get recognized as, as other. And so an immune response get, gets launched against these tissues. And then that causes dysfunction in whichever uh, tissue is being affected, whether it's uh, the skin, the muscle, or even the brain. So autoimmune disorders, really, they, they, like I said, they can, they can affect any system. Some are very multi-systemic, the disorders that we see in, in rheumatology. For example, things like uh, systemic lupus or type 1 diabetes, which, which, which affects pancreas uh, primarily. And then there's a group of autoimmune disorders which, which affect the brain. And these are disorders that we've become aware of perhaps a little bit later than some of the other um, autoimmune disorders. And the main sort of pathogenic process that we think is happening in these disorders is there's an antibody-mediated attack on, on one's own tissues. So in autoimmune disorders, the typical hallmark is that the, the, the body's B cells or their descendants start producing antibodies which attack our own tissues. Uh, and in the case of many neurological autoimmune disorders, these antibodies are actually being produced and they attack 
and they cause dysfunction of brain proteins. And frequently, these are neurotransmitter proteins, things like the NMDA receptor or other uh, neurotransmitter receptors, which I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. There are other sorts of autoimmune disorders that can affect the brain that may not be antibody mediated. For example, we're not entirely sure what the kind of autoimmune process going on in, in multiple sclerosis is. For example, we think that, that uh, there could be a T-cell mediated process as well. But essentially, the, the, these are all different ways that the uh, immune system can, can turn on the brain's own proteins and then cause various kinds of dysfunction depending on the kind of protein that's, that's being attacked. Okay. Basically, when the immune system more or less mistakens or mistakenly identifies the body's own cells or tissues as foreign, then it launches an immune response against them, which then, as you said, results in dysfunction, damage, and inflammation. So we can go into some of the exact conditions later on, but one of the autoimmune conditions that your work focuses on is encephalitis. So what exactly is encephalitis and how does this then relate to uh, psychiatric disorders? And I know there's infectious and autoimmune encephalitis, but maybe we can focus on autoimmune as I know that's more of where your work lies. So what are some of the symptoms or psychiatric features that show up and are predominant in uh, autoimmune encephalitis? Yeah, so so as you say, there are two kinds of encephalitis. There's a sort of one that's mediated by, by, by pathogens, bugs, by viruses of one sort or to another. Um, and then there are those that are mediated by an autoimmune process. And we've known that there are autoimmune encephalitis disorders for many years. And um, and in the past, we, we tended to associate them with the presence of a cancer. Um, mm. So if someone had a cancer, they would often, or in, in some cases, they, they would develop what's called a, a paraneoplastic process, whereby there was kind of a secondary autoimmunity that the body would seem to mount following development of a cancer and patient would become very neurologically unwell. And these were diagnosed by the presence of antibodies, although we thought in those cases, the antibodies would not actually be causing uh, the, the disorder. They were just some kind of biomarker. And the reason for this is these antibodies that would target intracellular targets, so uh, proteins within the cell. So we think that they probably weren't causing dysfunction themselves because they, they their targets were in the cell, whereas you really need to be targeting cell surface proteins to directly cause the kind of dysfunction uh, that, that we see in these disorders. So then the, the whole field really changed in, in the early 2000s with the identification of a new sort of family of autoimmune encephalitis. And this is where the psychiatric story sort of really began, because in 2000, between 2005 and 2007, uh, Josep Dalmau, who's a, a professor of neurology, Professor Josep Dalmau, who's um, he's now in Barcelona, but he was at the time at the University of Pennsylvania. And he noticed that there were a number of patients coming through uh, his service, young women who were presenting with an acute, well, a subacute but rapidly progressive encephalopathy um, that would kind of begin in almost all cases with psychiatric symptoms, often psychosis, and it would sort of progressively worsen until uh, there was the development of catatonia uh, or perhaps other kind of movement disorders, um, sometimes seizures, autonomic dysfunctions. So their sort of their heart rate, blood pressure, and their sort of physical control of their own physical function was, was all over the place. And uh, sometimes they would require intensive care support. And what he realized is that in this initial series, a lot of these patients uh, appear to have a benign ovarian tumor called an ovarian teratoma. When you um, looked at their, their blood for the presence of antibodies, he found that there were antibodies which 
uh, all had a very similar staining pattern when they were put on on brain slices. They had a, a very characteristic kind of staining pattern called a neuropil uh, staining pattern. So he thought that perhaps th- these all represent the, the, the same disorder. Uh, and after a lot of smart molecular science, he was able to identify the target of these antibodies, and it was the NMDA receptor. As we know, the NMDA receptor is one of the most ubiquitous neurotransmitter receptors in the brain. It underlies basic glutamatergic signaling. It's important for all sorts of learning, memory, emotion. And what seems to be happening in this disorder is that these antibodies target the NMDA receptor and they cause it either to be internalized into the the synapse or or to be moved away from uh, the synapse. So effectively, you have a reduction in the numbers of the NMDA NMDA receptors. So you have a sort of NMDA receptor hypofunction. And unsurprisingly, Mm -hmm. this gives rise to both psychiatric and neurological features. And if we think about what we know about NMDA receptor hypofunction, generally, we've got a good model for this, right? Because uh, there's a, a drug of abuse, ketamine, which targets the NMDA receptors and causes an NMDA receptor hypofunction. And it gives rise to some pretty extreme symptoms, cognitive dysfunction, uh, movement problems, sometimes even catatonia. And these symptoms, to, to some extent, actually resemble the kind of symptoms uh, that we see in, in uh, NMDA receptor uh, encephalitis. So... What, what, what I think was most interesting about these original series is that yeah. around 80%, I think it was in the first series of patients, because they initially presented with psychiatric symptoms, they were initially seen by mental health services. Mm-hmm. This doesn't mean that they all received a primary psychiatric diagnosis like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, but many of them did. And it was only when they went on to develop other symptoms, other more neurological symptoms like the seizures or the movement disorder um, or the autonomic dysfunction, that they're eventually sort of transferred to a neurological setting and and, and they got the diagnostic workup that, that they require. And that is what makes this disorder and the very many other kinds of autoimmune encephalitis that have been described since so interesting yeah. for the psychiatrist because early phases of the disorder, the presentation of the disorder is really, in some cases, sort of indistinguishable from uh, a, a, a first episode of psychosis. Yeah. One thing that comes to my mind, maybe this is a little bit more philosophical, but if we can now show that psychosis, or at least some form of these symptoms, are due to an autoimmune disease, then would that say that would no longer make this form of psychosis a psychiatric illness? Would that make psychosis a symptom of an autoimmune disease? And so hence, a neurologist would now need to treat it, not a psychiatrist? What, what do you think um, when it comes to this kind of treatment? Uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot in that question. The first thing to say is, and, and, and I guess this needs to be clear from the start, is these disorders probably represent, or as far as we know, represent a very small proportion of patients who present with first episode psychosis. And also that in some cases, these, these cases were indistinguishable from patients with a primary cause of their first episode psychosis, a so-called idiopathic cause. But in many cases, these patients aren't indistinguishable. There are red flag kind of signs and, and symptoms which might make us more likely to think that this is um, autoimmune uh, driven process. But the fact remains that many excellent neuropsychiatrists or psychiatrists or professors of, 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 of neurology see these patients and in the early stages they call it wrong. Uh, they think that, that perhaps this is just a, a, a primary psychosis and, and it later turns out not to be. And that 
does, as you say, <laughs> raise some really interesting philosophical questions. Now, there's a boring answer to this question. And the boring answer is that in our classification systems, the DSM and the, the ICD, uh, we have to rule out other causes. Uh, so we can only call it schizophrenia if we've ruled out secondary causes. Now, that is clearly a bit of a boring <laughs> answer because it doesn't get to the point at the point that I think you're, you're trying to get at, which is when we understand the biological basis of a particular disorder, mental disorder, does it then stop being the domain uh, of, of psychiatry? And I would strongly argue that no, it doesn't. But there's lots of historical reasons to suggest that, you know, perhaps other people <laughs> might disagree or, or the, the sort of the progression of science might, might disagree. And, and uh, a great example is epilepsy, right? So, um, right. you know, in the past, epilepsy was seen as, in the, in the distant past, it was seen as a result of demonic possession or, or, or witchcraft. Uh, and then it was eventually seen as, as a sort of product of mental illness or manifestation of, of mental illness. And it's only been sort of recently that the, the, the pathophysiological uh, mechanisms underlying epilepsy have been better understood. And it's now become the domain of neurology rather than psychiatry. Although having said that, I speak to many colleagues in low and middle income countries and epilepsy is still managed uh, by psychiatrists in, in, in those countries. But I guess the point is, is once you understand the pathophysiology, does that mean it's no longer the domain of, of, of psychiatry? And I think that's a slightly sort of reductionistic approach. And I, and I think for many reasons, we need to push back against that as psychiatrists. I think we we shouldn't we shouldn't define the domain of psychiatry as those symptoms which can't be reduced to uh, to biology. I think we should define our domain as those symptoms which uh, affect our emotions, our behaviour, our well being, and also I think psychiatry should be defined by the way we interact and 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 work with our patients. That we see our patients in a sort of more biopsychosocial, perhaps a, a holistic way, and we interact perhaps in a different way to, to other clinicians. And I, and I think actually, if anything, what that indicates is that the domain of psychiatry should, should be getting ever larger as we increasingly appreciate that sure. almost any disorder that can affect not just the brain, but affects the body can also affect our emotions, our, our, our mental well-being, our, our behavior. And I think there is this move for psychiatry to become more integrated with the rest of medicine rather than this little satellite that's slowly being whittled away by neurology. Yeah, very well said. I think syphilis was another example along with epilepsy that had that. But I think you made a really interesting point that now psychiatry is very multidisciplinary, right? And you can find it in all fields. Um, but it also makes me think of organic causes. Like, for example, when we hear someone showing symptoms of depression and they get diagnosed with clinical case of depression, but in reality, it was a thyroid disease was the actual cause. So I think perhaps it's one of those cases as well with autoimmune diseases where the symptom could be due to that organic cause rather than a psychiatric cause. But this isn't to say that a psychiatrist shouldn't be involved in it. Exactly. And I think that's where there's this kind of category error that gets made. And I know you've had people on, in the past talking about problems with dualism in, in psychiatry. Uh, yeah. And I think this kind of thinking fuels a, a really unhelpful kind of dualism, because there is this kind of reification of the biological process uh, over and above the sort of the, the psychological. And, you know, I, I have lost track of the number of times where patients in whom a sort of immunological or other organic cause has been identified. And, and, and that has entailed a, a sort of sudden, you know, rejection of, of psychiatry with the, the sort of the argument, this, this isn't a mental health problem. This is, this is another kind of problem. And, and I, 
I, I think what that does is it misses the fact that actually often, regardless of the, 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 the etiology of this problem, that the best approaches to treatment uh, are still the, what we would call broadly psychiatric or even psychological. Um, now, okay, we may well also be working on the underlying process. We may also be giving immunotherapy to somebody with encephalitis or, or cutting out the brain tumor that might be causing the symptoms, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also be, be working on symptomatic relief and working on, you know, improving that patient's psychological uh, sort of set up their support networks, etc. Mm. Yeah, I think um, you also recently published a paper along with some colleagues on this mental health outcomes of encephalitis. And you looked at how acute encephalitis is associated with psychiatric symptoms, um, meaning that a lot of individuals who have acute encephalitis also have a lot of mental health issues as well, or, you know, psychiatric conditions as well. So they really do go hand in hand and that people usually suffering with encephalitis also in parallel have a lot of mental health symptoms too, like depression or anxiety and mood um, instabilities, etc. So I think what you're saying is quite accurate because the study itself did show that in fact, psychiatric care and integration of psychiatry is needed within this field. That's right. And, um, you know, not, not only do people with the acute, in the acute phase of encephalitis frequently present with the kind of psychotic or anxiety or mood symptoms that we've, that we've been talking about, but the rates of acute suicidality in the acute phase, particularly of right. an MDA receptor, uh, antibody encephalitis are, are, are high. And, and, and certainly I think most people working in this field can, can recall, you know, some, fairly shocking cases where, where, where people have become acutely suicidal with this disorder. Now, that, that's, that's not necessarily that different to other uh, disorders that, that can affect the brain. I think what hasn't been appreciated quite so much until recently is that when somebody gets discharged from hospital, they've had the treatment for their encephalitis, for many people, that's when the journey begins. And um, in these patients, they are at a, at a greatly increased risk of new onset psychiatric disorders. And of course, the, the, this is where dualism kind of comes back. Not only is it difficult to keep following up these patients, despite the fact they often have, you know, huge unmet psychiatric need. And, and we've done large surveys where, where the vast majority of patients say that they feel that that, that need is not being met by existing services. And Funny enough, actually, the UK comes out worse when we ask this kind of question. But we have had patients who recover, for example, from anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. They've been acutely psychotic. They've been sectioned at some point, sometimes after weeks. You know, they've been in, they know what the inside of a psychiatric ward looks like very well. They eventually get transferred to, to the neurological ward where they have the disease altering uh, treatment. And then they're mm -hmm. discharged home. And we try and refer these patients to, to services that are designed for patients with the first episode of psychosis. And we are frequently mm. told, well, actually, no, this, um, this patient isn't suitable for our service because they, they have a brain problem. Um, are you serious? Apart, apart from the sort of the, the philosophical absurdity of, you know, this, the, these patients have gone through a, a fairly similar journey to another right. patient who has a first episode of psychosis that's not caused by an autoimmune problem. They've had the traumatic admission. They've had the, the, the sort of sometimes the, the forcible treatment without their, their consent. They, they have had the, disconnection from their family uh, and from their friends. And often they're not left with the kind of you know, psychological, psychiatric community support that they really need. And to me, that's just another tragic example of the way that this artificial division, brain disorders and mind disorders has, has real impacts on everyday life of these people. And, and we also know that 
patients who don't have ongoing psychiatric support, they do worse in the long term. They are less likely to return to school. Uh, they are less likely to return to, to, to full-time employment. My gosh. By psychiatric support, you, you also mean like support groups and psychological support, therapies, all-inclusive, right? All, all, all those things. And, and of course, it, it's tailored to the individual. It might mean having a, sure. um, a care coordinator to help someone, you know, with their, their financial needs, their social needs, their, even their educational needs for, for, for a couple of years. Now, they, they do also have additional needs, which are probably not massively well met either. You know, these, these patients often have cognitive problems following recovery mm -hmm. from encephalitis. They can be quite subtle in NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis, but there are other kinds of autoimmune encephalitis that we haven't discussed where patients are often left with much more serious cognitive complaints. Uh, and it can mm. often be quite difficult for people to, to access the, the needed cognitive rehabilitation uh, in, in the UK and in, in, in other countries uh, as well. And, you know, often these are cognitive problems, which mean everyday tasks are, are, are much more challenging than they would have been before the disorder. But of course, it's a, it's a hidden symptom. There's no external signs. And so frequently, you know, family, friends, employers say that these, these patients are doing fine. What's, what's the problem? Wow. I think you're raising a very important point. From what I'm understanding is that people who actually recover from acute encephalitis and after recovering, after they go back to their daily life, this is actually where the support is mostly needed, whether it's in terms of community, psychiatric care, et cetera. But this is where it lacks because that's probably the place where a person feels most vulnerable. They need the most support and help. And yet, as you said, because of that segregation, they may not get it, which is very sad. Yeah. And, and we need to do the research on what is the best kind of support that they need. Is it more sure. psychological? Is it more cognitively focused? And at the moment, it's just a question of our best guess, really. So, Dr. Pollock, how did you end up in this field? Was it from a personal interest, an academic one, um, basically to study, you know, immune causes of psychiatric illness? Yeah, so I never even uh, wanted to be a, a doctor. <laughs> uh, that, that kind of happened by accident. I think when I was fairly young, uh, I, I discovered Oliver Sacks. I discovered The Man Who Mistook His Wife mm. for a Hat, of his books. And I, and I knew at that age that I, I wanted to sort of see these patients who have these kind of dysfunctional brains and, 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 and find out about the way it impacts their, their life story. Uh, so I did a psychology degree uh, as a, an undergraduate. And then like so many people who finish a psychology <laughs> degree, they're unsure about what, what they want to do with the rest of their life. And, you know, there was the option of clinical psychology, but there was also the option of medicine. And I don't know whether this is still true, but in the UK, at least at the time, it was actually <laughs> more difficult to get into a clinical psychology degree. You know, I'm very happy that I, that I made the decision uh, that I did. Um, but I think from, from day one of studying medicine, I, I, I knew that I wanted to do something at the interface of neurology and psychiatry. And so that meant that, you know, after my first couple of years of training, when you've got to do all the, the sort of general jobs and look at people's feet and, the, and that kind of thing, I thought, well, I, okay, I should take some time out to think about this and decide whether I'm a more of a neurologist or more of a psychiatrist. So I, I, I took a year out to do a master's in clinical neurology at, at UCL, which is based wow. at Queen Square, which is the sort of the now, if you're interested in neurology, it's really the, the place where developments in, in neurology have happened historically, and it's still, you know, an absolute center of excellence worldwide. And I had the most, the most wonderful year there. And I became aware while, while I was there, this was 2010, on the wards, when I spent time on the wards, there was this influx of these patients, often young women who had been coming from the psychiatric ward. 
Schwartz, uh, who were then found out to have, you know, this likely autoimmune encephalitis. Often they came before it was diagnosed or the diagnosis had mm. just been, been made. But there was this real sense uh, amongst amongst the neurologists there at the time, of th we're about to see something really big. This feels like the, a wave that is just about uh, to hit us. And what was so Im impressive is when you looked at these patients and their initial symptoms, it, it felt like you, know, you could see why they were being admitted to psychiatric wards. And, and, yeah. and it felt like a little bit of a wonder that they ever made it to, to the neurology wards. And, and so the question mm -hmm. occurred to me, well, Ashley, Maybe someone needs to look at, at this. Maybe wow, someone needs okay. to ask the question in, in our psychiatric wards or in our, you know, our rehabilitation centers or our, in, even in our memory clinics. You know, is there a proportion of patients who might have a, a, you know, a very different kind of pathology that's going on? And so rather than needing all the kind of acute psychiatric treatment with all the burden that that can place on someone, maybe what they need is a, a sort of radically different treatment approach. And even if that proportion turns out mm. to be a relatively small proportion of patients, that that's transformative for them. Yes, I, I've I've seen the long term effects of patients in whom the diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis is is delayed, and like like so many acute neurological illnesses, it it causes permanent morbidity, permanent cognitive problems, permanent neuropsychiatric dysfunction. Sure, some there's some element of recovery, but but that's likely to be less the longer that these disorders r remain undiagnosed. And so I realized at that point that I that was the question I wanted to pursue. Wow. And actually, the place to pursue it was not within neurology, it was within psychiatry. So I, I came back to the Institute of Psychiatry as a sort of academic clinical fellow, and this has been my my sort of research interest since. So it's, so there has been this clinical interest in the patients with encephalitis, the ones on the neurology ward, but there's also been a research uh, interest alongside that on, well, actually, what, what's the, the relevance of, of autoimmunity or these antibodies to, to the larger psychiatric cohort that, that, that we sure. see as psychiatrists? Wow. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying, even though it's a small population, within the you know, psychiatric population or diagnosable one, it's still very relevant very much aligned with what you're saying. I want to bring up a case study that I read. It was actually from an article that was posted in the Washington Post. And it was about a young woman with catatonia. I think very much aligned with what you're saying. It seems that women are mostly diagnosed with this condition, at least from what you're saying and also from what I've read. But yeah, she was diagnosed with it. Basically, they said that she didn't know where she was or who she is and et cetera. And for many years, I think it was 20 years, she was in a psychiatric ward. And it took a psychiatrist at Columbia University to hypothesize that it actually might be due to an autoimmune condition. I'll definitely link the article to this episode description. It was very heartwarming. Honestly, I was very much in the verge of tears. It was just that whole story and, you know, the success of it afterwards, it really warmed your heart. But I think even more so, it did get me a little bit concerned. And you mentioned about diagnosis. So I think this aligns with that. How many people are being may perhaps misdiagnosed or being diagnosed but not getting a full checkup? And again, I guess this goes back to what we said earlier about the organic disease. If you remember this case study, can you talk to us a little bit about it? But then in general as well, how do you think this field currently is in terms of diagnosis? Is there an overdiagnosis? Is there an underdiagnosis of this condition? Okay. Yeah, this is uh, probably the, the, the big question and, and the one that I get asked in one form or other the most. So 
I do remember that case report sort of partly because of the fact it had a huge article in the, the Washington Post. And, and also it ends with the researchers who discovered this apparently being given $70 million to, uh, to, to research uh, similar, similar cases. I'm not sure whether it turns out that was just for this kind of research, but it made me realize that maybe I'm asking the wrong people for, uh, to grant on this. But th- so I think this patient was had a long-term catatonic condition that was eventually diagnosed as being related to neuropsychiatric lupus. And that was, I think, made, the diagnosis was made on the basis of blood tests for the, the, the antibodies that are characteristic of lupus. Um, and it sounds amazing. And, it, and you, you hear this story and you think, wow, you know, this could revolutionize psychiatry. Yep. And the headlines that say that come thick and fast. And I think we yes. have to be a little bit cautious about that because, in fact, for this particular example, there, there have been some pretty good studies showing that routinely measuring lupus antibodies, lupus biomarkers in patients with psychotic disorders probably doesn't result in much, very much useful yield uh, at all. We have, you hear these amazing single case studies and, and you want to be able to apply it to the whole of psychiatry. And then it never turns out to quite be that easy. And, and I'm, I'm a little bit, so, so, so I think the lupus story probably hasn't been fully developed yet, but the story I'm more familiar with is these NMDA receptor antibodies. And I guess that's what we've been talking about today. You know, after you know, 2007. And, and, and of course, there was the, the book Brain on Fire written by Susanna Cahillon, um, detailing her experience of an acute psychosis, which was initially misdiagnosed um, as a sort of primary psychosis before she's eventually diagnosed with NMDA receptor encephalitis. And, and she wonders in this book how many patients are being misdiagnosed. Yeah. So there was this moment in the early, I suppose, 2011, 2012, when, when a lot of people started having this thought at the same time. And, and, the, the answer at the time, people thought, well, this should be straightforward. We should just find a bunch of people with psychosis, with psychotic disorders, and measure these antibodies in them. And yes. maybe, maybe measure some other antibodies that can, can, can also cause autoimmune encephalitis. Uh, and then if they're positive, which they frequently were, you know, the, we saw rates of tended to be about five, six, seven percent. But depending on which kind of assay you use to measure the antibodies, sometimes it was as much as 20 percent. The idea was if you find these antibodies, then you found someone with a sort of immunotherapy reversible cause of psychosis. And all you need to do is call up your, your local friendly neurologist yeah. who will filter their blood or give them some sort of immunosuppressive medication and you've changed their That's life. That's exactly what I thought. Exactly. And so there was this huge wave of enthusiasm. And, you know, like any wave of biological enthusiasm in, in psychiatry, it turned out to be a little bit overblown, a little bit misguided. And mm. the, the problem at this time was that we were measuring these antibodies in the blood. Uh, and it turns out that these antibodies in the blood are not massively good biomarkers of actually having an autoimmune. And in fact, if you measure 100 healthy people, it might turn out that three or even four of these people, again, depending on how you measure these antibodies, might have these present in, in the blood. And they, and they don't have symptoms of psychosis or encephalitis, right? So I, I think there was a time where possibly people were, were, were misdiagnosed because it still happens today. And I'm frequently in the clinic that, that, that I run joint, jointly with neurology. We see, frequently see people who have been misdiagnosed on the basis of a blood only antibody. It's become clear that the way to diagnose this disorder, there's really three sort of main prongs. We need to do a lumbar puncture, which means we need to get access to the cerebrospinal fluid that bathes the brain to see whether the antibodies are there, because it's only if they're there, we know that they're actually accessing the brain. 
We can also look for other markers of inflammation, things like the cell count and, and um, other evidence that antibodies might be being produced in or around the brain. Also, we want to do an MRI. Also, we want to do uh, an, wow. an EEG on these patients. And what that that's means, that's an enormous burden for... And it's expensive. And it's expensive. So this idea that we could go around screening the blood, probably, well, we, we, we actually don't know whether blanket screening of, say, all patients with the first episode of psychosis uh, using just blood measures is, is useful at all. We know that a lot mm. of patients who have blood-based antibodies don't have anything going on in, in, in their spinal fluid. Um, and so these, in, to, in some sense, are kind of false positive antibody uh, uh, results, or at least we, we can't treat these patients with immunotherapies on the basis of a blood antibody alone. But the question then is, well, who do we test? with a lumbar puncture, with an EEG. If you work in you know, a, a psychiatric ward in the UK, or in fact, really any country in the world, but you know, particularly thinking about low and middle income countries here, right? It's, there's no way at, at all that you'll be able to routinely assess all your new patients with these kinds of uh, investigations. So the, the criteria that were around from the mid 2010s from I think 2016 for diagnosing autoimmune encephalitis, they were super useful because there were some really clear criteria, but they assumed that that actually you'd already done these investigations on, on your psychiatric patients. And even now, a lot of the big neurology groups who, who work in this field are advocating pretty much sort of blanket screening. And, and, and I, I think while that's great in principle, it probably doesn't do justice to the reality on the ground. And so in, in, in 2019, with a, a, a large bunch of neurologists, neuroimmunologists, infectious diseases doctors, uh, ethicists, uh, we published a, a, a set of criteria for the identification and, and, and management of autoimmune psychosis. Uh, and these were, in in some ways, well, they were very much aimed at psychiatrists. And then, and and one of the things I'm proudest about them is that they help psychiatrists decide which patients to investigate. Mm. Given the reality that you can't investigate ed everyone on your, on your ward, it suggests a group of sort of red flag type signs and symptoms, um, which will allow psychiatrists, psychiatrists to say, sure, these are the ones that we need that need the lumbar puncture yeah. or, or the MRI. And then goes on to say, once you've done that, how likely does it seem that, that this um, is, is an autoimmune brain process that yeah. has been going yeah, that's really good work. I think I read a study where it said people with autoimmune disorders don't respond well to antipsychotic medication. So would that, for example, be a symptom that you would later on hypothesize that, okay, wait, maybe they should do further examination and things like that? It's, it's one amongst many symptoms. There are plenty of patients with psychotic disorders who don't respond well to, sure. to antibiotics and, and they haven't got something autoimmune going, going on. But if, for example, on their first exposure to an antipsychotic, they develop a neuroleptic malignant syndrome type presentation, this very acute sort of neurological response to antipsychotics where patients become rigid, they become hot and feverish, uh, their, their inflammatory markers go up. That could be the evidence that there's something organic or more specifically autoimmune going on. So these are the kinds of patients that you do want to be investigating a little bit further. Also, you know, patients who are presenting with catatonia, we know that in patients who are catatonic, they're, they're a proportion who do have an autoimmune encephalitis as a cause of their symptoms. Of course, there are many other symptoms of, of catatonia as well. But it's sure. these kind of red flags uh, that I, at the moment, we think are going to be most helpful in, in guiding clinicians for, for, for who to test. And it's not just about the antibody. I think that's one of the main clinical sort of lessons I, that I try and get across to people is that you, you make these diagnoses on the basis of the entire clinical picture and the kinds of symptoms they're presenting with the course of onset of these symptoms. 
if somebody has a, a, a prodrome of a year of their psychosis, as is so frequent, this slow kind of decline before they, they, they become acutely psychotic, that's very unlikely to be mm-hmm. uh, immune uh, in, in origin. So yeah, it's all about kind of not relying too much on the biomarkers, uh, using them when, when they're appropriate, but also just keeping that kind of clinical you know, judgment. Uh, sure. That's not to say that there isn't a lot of exciting work on new biomarkers going on. And, and you know, in the research part of my, my career, and there's lots of exciting work going on showing that maybe if we start thinking more widely about, you know, markers of autoimmunity, it might actually suggest that a higher proportion of patients that we thought might have an autoimmune contribution uh, for, their, for their psychotic symptoms. But that doesn't mean at the moment that these biomarkers are, are ready for the clinic. They're, they're not. Yeah, that's very well said. It actually answered one of the questions that I had in mind, which was, should immunological testing be a big part of the examination process when with someone in acute psychosis? I think your answer really clarified it, that it's way more complex than that. And as you said, you have to take the history of the person and not just look at that one tiny impact, for example, the biomarker. It's much more holistic and a more, you know, wider approach, which obviously makes a lot of sense, you know. There has been a recent growth in research on inflammatory conditions in psychiatric disease, and I wanted to know your perspective on inflammatory, you know, reductionism, and if inflammation is kind of the solution to all medical and psychiatric problems. We now see so many people, not only in terms of autoimmunity, but in general, the connection between inflammation, gut and depression or et cetera. Because we're all very different, right? As you've very much clarified for us and diseases are very multifaceted and may have multiple underlying causes. In what ways do you think or can an overemphasis on inflammation as the root cause um, may be misleading? Yeah, this is something that I'm really passionate about and I you know, I'm keen to to look more into because it it is becoming such a big issue for me clinically and for pretty much all the colleagues. So, it, this kind of concern of mine began when we really began to notice a, a lot of patients coming to to our clinic or contacting us with concerns that either their own psychiatric illness or or, or that of a loved one frequently psychosis, but sometimes autism spectrum disorder or anxiety disorders or, or affective disorders that might have an, an inflammatory cause. And there was this sense, you know, having read articles in the newspaper, that some people, patients would sometimes come in, you know, with, with newspaper articles or having red brain on fire. Or, and there was this sense of, well, you know, I think my brain is on fire. Can, can, can you treat me with immunological therapy? And and of course, as someone who, whose research is entirely aimed at trying to work out what proportion of patients' brains might be on fire, to kind of use that phrase, it's it's a difficult situation because what you don't want to do is over-investigate and you certainly don't want to be treating patients with immunological therapies inappropriately, right? Because when you immunosuppress someone, you put someone at increased risk of, of, of infection and, and, and other kinds of problems. And particularly, you know, over the last few years when there was a, a pandemic raging, this mm. was a, an extremely Im- important thing. We, we did not want to put people at increased risk um, from, from COVID. But I think the 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 sort of impetus to to want i say to want i don't think that's quite the right word but to 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 perhaps look for a diagnosis that is inflammatory in nature i i think it it has a number of different causes i think first off and we have to be really clear about this i think there's some element of anti-psychiatric stigma 
which is fueling this, right? I think there is, we have somehow ended up in a, in a sort of moment in history where there is still so much stigma about psychiatric diagnoses that there is sort of something almost preferable about having a sort of neuroimmunological brain <laughs> condition yeah. than a diagnosis of, of schizophrenia. And frequently, until or even after all the investigations have been completed, it's, it's not uncommon for, for families not to want to engage with, with psychiatric treatments or, or, or just the whole psychiatric process in, in general. And what one sees this in other areas, you know, not just in, in, in sort of psychosis. I think, I think we see it all throughout psychiatry and all throughout med- medicine as a whole. There is this sense that maybe psychiatrists are over-psychologizing everything. And and there's almost this kind of anti-psychiatric uh, discourse which is developing. Um, and it's interesting because I think the anti-psychiatry that, that, that we grew up with was a sort of, you know, the, it was this argument that we were medicalizing everyday sadness, right? We were over-medicalizing yes. normal human experience. And that kind of anti-psychiatry, you know, is still going. But there's this other kind of anti-psychiatry which has begun to develop. And that is the total opposite. It's saying that we are not medicalizing these disorders enough. We are overly psychologizing them and boiling them down to psychological and social factors. When in fact, some people think they should be, be, be able to be reduced to a single pathogen, you know, a single kind of bug, which is causing so much mental illness or a single kind of antibody or a single uh, inflammatory process. And yeah, I've termed this a kind of inflammatory reductionism or inflammatory uh, essentialism. And it's so you don't stand on that spectrum. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> I think like so much, I, you know, the, the truth is obviously somewhere in, in the middle. And, and, and this, you know, there, there is good research showing that psychiatric disorders have, or many of them may have an inflammatory basis of some sort at a population level. We, we know that probably haven't had much time to talk about that evidence today. But but that is true. But that doesn't mean that we're in a position yet where we can say that an individual, when they become unwell, has a particular bug or a particular pathogen uh, as their cause. And I think it's because we, we're, we're at this kind of moment where there's this real aversion to embracing complexity. Everything has to be sort of over o- oversimplified. This is true of political discourse as it is of, of, of everything else. And of course, well, I can't remember who it was described as we're in a pandemic of certainty at the moment. We, we, we need this e- easy answer. And of course, a single pathogen that just requires antibiotics or a single antibody that just requires immunological therapy does represent something very certain, something very tractable, a sort of, you know, a single explanation. Uh, there's a historian of medicine who used this word monocausotaxophilia, which is an amazingly long, silly word to describe the tendency to want to boil everything down to a single causal. The dangers of this, I think, are, are that I mean, they're very real, right? Because we, we have these patients who come to us who have either been inappropriately diagnosed with these disorders or who feel that a diagnosis is that they do have a, a, a sort of inflammatory or immune diagnosis. And, you know, if we don't think that that is the case, we, we will tell them that. And then sometimes these patients will find themselves engaging with this increasing number of alternative providers who are quite happy to give people immune modulating drugs, IVIG. Autologous stem cell transplants. There was a paper in the last week that came out which studied 38 medical centers, I think mainly in, in, in the US and Mexico, but, but, but around, around the place offering stem cell transplants for the treatment Shit. of, basically for the treatment of, 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 of long COVID, right? And these are, the point is that these are unevidenced. You know, 
we're now seeing a lot of patients who are having these sometimes very dangerous and and more to the point, very, very expensive treatments. And and of course, in in every case I can think of pretty much, these treatments haven't worked uh, for them. And I think this is the dangers of an increasingly unregulated medical system that doesn't prioritize evidence enough. You start to lose people to to the peripheries and to the the sort of the ecosphere system that exists in a kind of evidence-free zone. And I think it's really important that 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 medicine as as a whole starts to think about this a little bit more and to kind of take a stand. Uh, but also that we do the really good research that that can actually define yeah. you know what proportion of patients is an inflammatory or an immunological process actually responsible. And for that better funding we need we need we need more people working on it too. Wow. These are excellent points, Dr. Polk. Thank you so much for that. I think it's very valuable because as you said, one article comes out and then the next thing you know, everyone is like, I have an inflammatory disease. And, you know, it takes researchers and, you know, psychiatrists like you to say, well, hold on a minute. I've been studying this for a decade and more. And I can tell you that it's really not as simple as that. And I think you are right. We need to embrace that complexity because we are complex systems. So it makes sense that things will not always boil down to one answer. Um, from what I'm really understanding is that there are challenges and complexities in both diagnosing but also treating autoimmune psychosis or you know inflammatory compared to other psychiatric disorders due to this reason, right? Because treatment with immunotherapy or immunological approaches can actually be dangerous. So we need to be very careful when we're giving such treatments to patients because there could be consequences which could make it even worse. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, we, we do see these consequences. Frequently, one of our first line treatments is, is intravenous steroids, which is then treated with, with, with oral steroids. And of course, people remaining on steroids for a long period of time can, can lead to all number of, um, of complications. Some of the more immunosuppressive medications put someone at, at, at risk for, for infections of, of, of various kinds. So we, do, we have to have a pretty high degree of certainty before we decide to, to treat someone, you know, in, in this way. And I think that's where the, the field is so rapidly evolving and there are so many different camps. And I think the main sort of pain point, the main area of disagreement is what is that threshold? In the UK, typically we are probably on the more conservative end of the spectrum, which means that we have patients who will leave the UK to, to, to access medical care um, that is perhaps a, a little less conservative. And these thresholds keep changing with the research. I suppose the other interesting thing from a research point of view, and we've recently been given a, a, you know, a really big grant to, uh, to, to look at, at this over eight years from, from, from the Wellcome Trust, is <laughs> actually you know, this distinction between psychiatric treatments and immunological treatments might, might not be such a simple one, right? Um, yeah. Because there's, there's increasing evidence that that maybe some psychiatric treatments, which we didn't think worked on the immune system, might actually have quite powerful immunological effects. And, and it might even be those immunological effects which mediate the effects of the, 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 the therapeutic effects of these drugs. And, and mm. that's something we're, we're really excited about, because if it turns out that one reason that some of these drugs are, are successful in the treatment of psychosis is actually and I say psychosis, but also other neuropsychiatric disorders as well, is actually because of their effects on the immune system. If we're able to pinpoint the, the active ingredient or the particular immune cell subset that is being affected, for example, then that is a, 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 you know, a very promising avenue to lead on to, to new and better, more targeted, more personalized treatments. And, sure. and I think that's, the, that's one of the really exciting areas uh, coming up. Absolutely. So kind of to lead to that, Dr. Pollock, as a final question, how 
do you see or do you want to see the field evolving in the future when we think of the exploration and the connections between, you know, infections, the immune system, and also psychiatric disorders? Yeah. So, I mean, people talk about immunopsychiatry as, as a new field. It's a new field of research and it's also a new clinical field. And I think what, what we really need is the, the good quality, large scale research that will be able to translate these research findings into clinical developments. And, and I, I, you know, for that, we need large studies combining, you know, big cohorts with comprehensive immunological mm. testing. And I think this is the key because if you, if you think about where we are in 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 this field, I liken it maybe to where we were, but I don't know, fifteen or so, maybe a bit more years ago in, in the in the sort of psychiatric genetics field, right? Mm. People were asked, is there a schizophrenia gene? Uh and you know, and, and then a few people would say, Oh, I like the sound of this one, you know, this particular transporter or you know, and so there would be you know, a, a big flurry of activity looking for the relevance of that particular mu mutation or that particular gene in, in schizophrenia. And, you know, there were some positive results, but the effect sizes were never particularly big. And yeah. it was only when the technology took us out of that era into the genomic era, where the kinds of questions that were being asked changed. So we no longer asked, what's the relevance of, of my favorite gene to this particular disorder? In what way does the entire genome contribute to the yeah. development of this disorder. And, and, and we now ask that about every psychiatric disorder. We know that there will be an answer in principle, an answer about what is the contribution of the genome to any psychiatric disorder that we, yeah. that we can ask it about. It might not necessarily be a big contribution, but there will be something. So, so polygenic risk scores is, is a great example of that. Right. And mm. I think, but, but more the, the sort of the, <laughs> You know the, the the genetic landscape as a whole, the interaction of of, of, of multiple genes, and and what what that is saying about pathways as well. Now, I think with the advent of higher throughput, larger scale immunological techniques, things like you know high content, high throughput immunophenotyping, you know, can now be done on 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 samples that are more easily acquired than than was necessary in the past. I think we're we're entering a stage where we can start to ask similar questions about the immune system in, in psychiatry. No longer are we going to ask, well, what proportion of patients with psychosis have NMDA receptor antibodies or what proportion actually have lupus antibodies or, or that kind of question. And we could actually ask, you know, what does the immune landscape look like from a bird's eye view in, the, in, in these patients? What, what are the, the sources of, of, of immune variation that, that contribute to, to the phenotype here? And when we take a sort of immunome wide view that I think we're going to realize that it will probably at some point make sense to say of any psychiatric disorder, what, what is the contribution of the immune system to this disorder? Mm. And there will be some in which there is a strong, you know, clearly autoimmunity dominant contribution. And there will be some in which the contribution is more minimal. But I think it makes sense now to start asking it of every disorder and, and of every patient. And I think that this is where the big discoveries are going to come. But it, it requires big data, high throughput technologies, lots of patients. So I think it, we're doing it, we're starting this, but it, it's going to be a little while till, till we have all, all, all the results. The results, yeah. Wow. Dr. Pollock, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you for your research, your work, and also raising awareness on this topic. 
which by the way, I think many of us are unaware of, uh, including myself before I actually discovered your work. So I think this is a huge area that needs to be considered and also be more proactive in psychiatry as well. So best of luck in your research, as you mentioned, and I really look forward to seeing the results and more work on this field. So yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. If you did like this episode, don't forget to share and subscribe on your favorite podcast hosting site. Your support is always appreciated. As always, I'll be linking Dr. Pollock's website, Twitter, and his work to this episode description, along with chapter markers and further readings for your ease of access. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you next time.